Do you feel like a complete and utter Muppet? I'm sitting around reading law books on the weekend going, oh god, this is interesting. <laughs> they've, they've amended section 127. This was supposed to send you off on a good note, not a <laughs> <laughs> thinking about climate change. You're listening to The Briefcase. Episode 7. It is Friday, 16 September. I'm Sarah. I'm your host. And we are officially a mere four days away from my birthday. So make sure you mark that off on your big ships of the Navy calendar. Okay, let's do this. What's in the briefcase this week? Whoops, wrong button. Let me try that again. There you go. All right, so apart from my lame sense of humor, there's two updates in the briefcase this week, including a trusts refresher. But first up, I talk with Paula Moreau, barrister at the Queensland Bar, about the second Hear Her Voice report by the Women's Safety and Justice Task Force led by Margaret McMurdo. So how are you today? I'm well, thanks. Good. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Nice to have pastries. Oh, look, I, I never come <laughs> empty-handed. So if memory serves, in the first Hear Her Voice report, I think Margaret McMurdo made a point um, and been quite scathing of the profession in terms of being complicit in systems abuse. It's, a, it's, it's obviously a harsh label, and I think, but she speaks from a position of experience and having seen all of the evidence that she would have seen. Mm, so, mm. and she's not uh, a woman who would ever overstate things, you mm. know. So, I, I've no doubt that that's the the state of play. Mm. Um, you know, there, there's a whole level of context with domestic violence that we don't really notice unless it's at its most extreme forms, mm. you know. Mm. And so, I, I think there's some hope here too. Of course, even though. Um, these reports and the findings of Inquesa are very recent examples of, of significant institutional failings, but that the community is talking about it because of these women's lives, you mm. know, essentially. And I think when you're looking at domestic violence that becomes fatal in mm. particular, the presence of a controlling partner mm. in some form and, you know, a, a potential or, or having past used violence, those sorts of factors, particularly that controlling, which we, we've, we've be, all become aware of this idea of coercive control, mm. but it essentially is, you know, unwanted control of one's sense of self and the way that one expresses oneself and the way that one lives, right? Uh, and those sort of psyches in a, in a partner can be, become extremely volatile and dangerous when, uh, when a relationship breaks down. It's one of those things, I think, that a lot of people struggle with, the the concept of coercive control, because it's not necessarily something you can put your finger on. It's a feeling, it's a a spidey sense, it's a bit of a, you know, alarm bell, red Mm. flag sort of stuff. And I think that's where a lot of perpetrators live in those shadows because it's difficult to to put your finger on it or point to something in particular. It might be for someone outside of the house Mm. to put a finger on it. I I have no doubt that people inside the house are well aware of of the entirety of that conduct but are often uh, understandably reluctant to speak to people about it because Mm. it's a... Um, at a particular beginning stages, it may be a, a less overt mm. form, right? Mm. Um, and I guess that's another really important part of the process that's been championed by Margaret McMurdo and mm. the two inquests that we're, we're talking about today as well, Doreen Langham's and Hannah Clark's inquests, where the findings were recently handed down, both looked at 
the fact that there were many opportunities of lots of agencies, you know, m- medical, mental health, family services, um, police, police, all these things, where the perpetrator might have been able to be actually monitored, supported, deterred, counselled, given whatever supports. I don't, I'm not sure whether that the result would have changed in mm. in these particular cases. And, of course, there were opportunities given to both of the men, but I think the capacity for more and earlier intervention and identification of those sort of more nuanced features, Mm. um, because, as you say, it is a snapshot that a person interacting with the couple might see or seeing the children might see, Mm. um, but it's uh, about being aware um, and if it is within a context where there's not just one but, you know, um, a couple of things that are not right, mm. um, yeah, then, then I guess you reflect on what our, our responsibility as community members is to be a support to whatever that person is, is requiring at the time. Do you think that above and beyond being community members, do you think that members of the legal profession should be held to a higher standard in terms of responding to those red flags? I think it depends on what that legal professional's role is because, of course, our primary ethical obligation is to our client in that context, right? Yes. So if you're acting for a person that you think might be a perpetrator, your response might be different too if you're acting for someone who you think might be subject to someone's coercive control, for instance, or yes. or even worse. Especially in the criminal profession, you know, it's really antithetical to our role to have any judgment of that person's conduct because your role is really to analyse the evidence and to advise them about their response in a criminal process. Mm. But, you know, I've acted for many vulnerable people um, in, in a number of contexts uh, of which potential domestic violence is one that you tailor and you do obtain that expert assistance. Um, You know, my process is generally to ensure there are support people who I can get some sort of level of understanding and awareness of the situation who can be their personal support Mm. or, you know, professionals if, if it's at that level where the person might be requiring some professional assistance. And, of course, giving referrals to particular agencies is a big part of the recommendations of the report and these inquests as well to make sure that at least that those pathways are accessible to Mm. people. Do you think it's prudent and wise to have a list of referral points of contact that you can just give? Yes, for law firms to have those pre-existing relationships where they know they're referring to someone that they, Mm. they appreciate would be aware of how to how to treat that person Mm. it's you know a course of benefit okay so what are the key findings from these inquests that you think are going to impact on a general practitioner look the recommendations are largely addressed to policing and funding okay by government so looking at a number of programs that the police are trialling at the moment in terms of multidisciplinary responses, so embedding domestic violence social workers with police in their responses to uh, domestic violence incidents and those sorts of approaches. Having a more family-friendly police station is something that they're trialling. In fact, a gender-specific police station where women can feel comfortable that they are going to be respected uh, and not have to, say, for instance, bump into their their um, their partner or their ex-partner at the time they're at the police station sort of thing, right. which do involve, I think, some elements of the multidisciplinary approach of mental health professionals. 
Administrative assistance is also really important for people who are faced with a risky situation, you could imagine. Housing, Mm. necessities, all of those things, all the steps that a person has to respond to. But one thing that did come out of both the inquest and the report is, of course, we place a lot of burden on victims of domestic violence Mm. to protect themselves. And to prove that something is going on. Well, in the police context, that certainly became evident. You mm. know, police officers were, are, are thinking in terms of that criminal level of proof, even though for a DVO, mm. that doesn't apply, mm. right? Mm. In order to obtain a DVO, that is. Mm. So that's something that was mistaken, I think, about some of the police officers' responses and evidence of that cultural shift that is required in that sort of institution. And this is also emphasised that it's not just the police, it's not just the legal profession, it's not just psychologists, it gets quite broader throughout, you know, education, contacts with families, by friends, but I think it's community-wide. Coercive control seems to be a phrase that has just exploded and is everywhere and has been used quite a bit. Is that a fairly new concept that's come out of the Hear Her Voice process? It's certainly been a focal point of the Hear Her Voice reporting process uh, and the recommendation to establish that as a separate crime. But I think that the Hear Her Voice process was almost a response to that tide of interest. The concept of control or even coercive control within domestic violence was already there, really, by how the domestic violence is defined under the Act. Right. Uh, But it's really putting it as a standalone offence that that can be identified in itself as a a form of domestic violence that really is emphasised by the criminalisation of that behaviour. What that gives is the police more powers to arrest someone. Right. Because it's criminalised. And a large part of the cultural shift has been towards not just seeing domestic violence offences as or breaches as being civil breaches of orders but seeing them as criminal offences and and policing them as you would any other criminal offence in that sense. So Hannah Clark's death was in February 2020. Doreen Langham died in February 2021. The inquests were heard close to each other earlier this year. You can see from the timing even of Doreen's death that there have been even more steps taken by the police service hierarchy to try and affect cultural change within the institution and to start assessing and ensuring that there's some expertise about it amongst the force on the ground. Mm. February 2021 is not very long ago. No, right? it's not. At the time of the inquest, it was it was 12 months since her, her passing and the police response in the Langham matter was the subject of quite significant criticism by the coroner because... There were some 16 interactions, I think, between her and police that were really mapping this escalating stalking behaviour on the part of her partner, ex-partner, I should say, and the information at hand in Mm. relation to his interstate criminal history, which was, if one had looked at it, anyone would have immediately realised that Doreen was in severe danger Mm. because he had stalked prior partners and he was also investigated for the fire of, of a prior partner's house. So oh um, I don't think he was convicted in relation to that, but th- those sort of records were available to police and not one of the officers who were interacting with her even checked that interstate history. He had no Queensland history or flags that suggested to them that there would be that, that additional concern. So we're in the southern corner. It's not 
hmm. far away and hmm. in, a, in a, a nation like Australia, you'd think that policing services would have full access to interstate records and things mm. like that. That was one of the recommendations from the coroner that that occur, mm. that it be directed that they look into those records mm. to properly assess the risk that's presented by a situation they're turning up to. And I think also something else to keep in mind is that the image of a domestic violence or coercive control victim or somebody experiencing that behaviour, it isn't always the cowering sort of figure, dishevelled person. Yeah, um, Mm. I think it's quite often highly educated people. It's everyone, really. It's everyone. No one's immune. Every sector of society, I think. And, you know, some people will have social constraints and pressures like that. Others Mm. will have, you know, protection of their children being, you know, a really significant component of every response that they're going to make. There's just so many motivations Mm. and difficulties Mm. around domestic violence. I mean, there's conflicting emotions. Exactly. And the stereotype view, sadly, was applied to at least Doreen Langham because she presented as someone who was coping. Mm. you know, mm. uh, and who who was a bubbly personality. Mm. Uh, and the police mistook that for no fear. Thank you again to Paula Moreau for sharing her insights around that very emotive topic and something that I personally believe all lawyers should be across regardless of your practice area. Next up is a Trusts Refresher with Karen Gaston, Barrister at the Queensland Bar. What are the different types of trusts? Well, um, there's a number of different types of trusts. The two main ones I think that the ordinary person has is either a unit trust mm-hmm. where everyone has a, a fixed interest in a, in a unit and they're usually used for commercial ventures because they're much easier, you know, you can buy some units in a particular trust and, and whatnot. What's a unit? Well, it's just a fixed interest. Okay. It's a fixed interest in that trust. That trust might, what, might have 100 units and you might buy two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so you end up with two one-hundredths of whatever the underlying assets of that trust are. But the right. point is it's a fixed interest in that trust. Right. The difference with, for example, a discretionary trust is all of those assets are held subject to discretionary powers of a trustee. So that means in any one given year, the trustee amongst a range of beneficiaries can make a different decision about how to distribute income. Right. Um, in that doesn't have to be equal. It, they can and it can it change all. year to year. They can decide to give the you know one person sixty percent or everything, and then the next year different. And that's one of the uh, suppose the selling points of it because it means that. Um, you know, trust lasts for up to 80 years. It's very difficult on day one to imagine what the beneficiaries of the trust's circumstances will be at, you know, day even 40. Mm. They're going to be very different. And how do you set that in stone? So the best part about it, it allows a lot of flexibility. Mm. So it says, you know, a trustee can sit down and say, well, this year it makes much more sense to distribute the income this way. Fast forward on 10 years, it makes much more sense to distribute in a different way. Right. It means that it's flexible and it can change with the, the beneficiary circumstances. Mm, mm. But the downside of flexibility is a lack of certainty. Mm. So on in any one given year, a beneficiary's got no certainty mm. in terms of any benefit that they might get out of that trust. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on The Briefcase. And remember to like, subscribe and rate us on your podcast platform of choice if you haven't already. It's time to close her up. 
See you next time. I'm Sarah Kral and this is The Briefcase.